Yeah, yeah. I almost started dancing on that one this time. <laughs> you know, so that, I, I love that tune. I actually looked that up last week after I heard it. You know, it's really catchy. And that's a, that's a song by the Friends of Distinction. So if you want to look that up, it's the Friends of Distinction, 1969. Okay, it's on YouTube. And in case you're wondering what, the, what they're saying in that chorus, I'm going to tell you what they're saying. They're saying this, I can dig it. He can dig it, she can dig it, we can dig it, they can dig it, you can dig it. Oh, let's dig it. Can you dig it, baby? That's what they're saying. (laughs) So so that's the theme of our sermon series, right? Can you dig it, right? We're we're digging into God's word because as we heard last week, we want to keep the faith, baby, but not the baby faith, right? And And so what we're doing, we're spending this summer... Uh, surveying the inheritance of great things that God wants us to know. So in keeping with uh, Pastor Brad's suggestion last week, I actually Googled Summer of Love. And you know, it, it's legit. It, uh, it really happened in 1967, was in fact the Summer of Love. And they said about 100,000 uh, people converged on San Francisco. Mostly young people sporting hippie fashions of dress and behavior. Now, I I think I know what hippie dress looks like. And I have an idea of what hippie music sounds like. But when it comes to hippie behavior, it's probably best left to the imagination. (laughs) So... But, uh, so I have, I, uh, honest to say, I haven't experienced much of the hippie behavior, uh, but I do know, I do know a little bit about character, um, and that's what I want to talk about today. Uh, today, I want to talk about the character of God. I want to talk about what God is like, um, and you'll notice by your, uh, the notes of, for, your, for the sermon notes that, that God is not like us. You know, when I started thinking about this, I was reminded of, of the, I think, the first thing I learned about human character. It occurred when I was, uh, when I was in high school. Of course, uh, I was raised with my stepdad. He was a wheat farmer out in Dayton. And so we spent our summers uh, working on the farm. And uh, during wheat harvest, of course, wheat harvest is a very intense time of year for any of, the, of you who've worked it. It's long, it's hot, and it's, it's pretty intense. And back in those days, of course, we had three small combines, uh, which by today's standards, they cut wheat at a snail's pace. And so harvest would, la- would last uh, four or five weeks, uh, sometimes going into September. And throughout week after week, the days are long, the days are hot, and there are a lot of breakdowns. And we didn't have the luxury of hiring a mechanic, so my stepdad was the mechanic. If if anything broke, he fixed it. Well, there was one morning in the middle of a long harvest that uh, uh, we were busy servicing equipment, right? We spend every morning greasing, oiling, fueling, making sure everything's ready to go. And tensions were running a little bit high. Uh, My stepdad was more stressed than usual, and my twin brother wasn't helping anything because, uh, if you know I have a a twin brother, but between the two of us, he's the alpha, right? He's the one who's a little more bold. He's a little more brazen. He's he's a little more 
hard-headed, right? And, uh, and so throughout the morning, the emotional tension was just building. It was building all morning long. And it, and it culminated in a, in a literal tug-of-war of wills over a little pe- a tool called a grease gun, right? We, we were getting ready to finish, and uh, my, my brother and my stepdad, they grabbed this grease gun, and neither would let it go, right? Well, keep in mind now, I mean, their, their tensions were high, and so my, dad, my stepdad got so mad that he let go of the grease gun, and he put up his dukes. And they didn't realize it, but I was watching this whole thing. I was, I was sort of standing back, and I couldn't believe my eyes. I could not believe my eyes that my stepdad was ready to fight my brother. Well, the fight didn't occur, but the emotional damage was, was permanent. How could a grown man who was basically my dad put up his fists and threatened to fight. I mean, that was a real crisis to me. And uh, I'm sure there was part of him that didn't really want to fight, but I know there was part of him that did. And that's the thing about character. Uh, Conflict can reveal things about us that we didn't know were there. It's a little bit like a waiter carrying soup on a tray. You don't really know what's inside until he gets bumped. And so true character doesn't reveal itself until we get bumped. Now, unfortunately, that day showed me how the same man who loved and married my mom and really did care about us kids could also reach a turning point in which he becomes threatening and hurtful. And what's even more scary is I've seen it in myself. What I observed in my stepdad is true about me. And sadly, it's true about you. We all have our limits. We're all broken and liable to turn against those we love. And so how does this affect the way we view God. In other words, is God like us? Right? If, if God gets bumped, are there parts of Him that come out that we didn't know were there? And if God is not like us, then what is He like? And so to answer these questions, we need to see where God has experienced the greatest conflict. Where has God experienced the greatest conflict, the deepest hurt and rejection? Where has God confronted such an opposition of wills? And within such conflict, what is the character of God that emerges? What does God do? What does God say? And so one of the, one of the most dramatic conflicts that God ever faced was in the Old Testament book of Exodus. So I'd like to begin in Exodus chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open there, because what we're going to do is uh, we're going to skip through a very long narrative. That's what Exodus is. It's, it's, a, it's a very long narrative, 40 chapters long, and it describes 
God rescuing Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And the, and the first half describes God's miraculous um, rescue of Israel out of Egypt. And then the second half describes God's communication of his laws and expectations. And so three months after being set free from Egypt and being led into the wilderness by the presence of God, Israel had arrived to a mountain we call Sinai. And it was at this mountain that God affirmed both his covenant commitment to Israel and his vision for their lives. And so chapters 19 and following describe this interaction. But what I'd like to do is to, this morning is we're going to kind of skip through these chapters like a flat rock on water, right? We're going to, we're going to touch on the highlights, but then we're going to slow down and we're going to dig in. So, for example, if we start at uh, chapter 19, in verse 5, we read of God saying this, Exodus 19, verse 5, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Well, that sounds pretty good, okay? God affirms his love and commitment, and the people respond, we will do everything the Lord has said. In other words, the implied question is, right, God lays it out and he says, can you dig it? And the people say, groovy, we got it, groovy. Well, so this isn't the only place that affirmations and declarations take place. You see, if we, if we skip ahead into chapter 24, so let's do that. If we skip ahead to chapter 24 and read verse 3, we see that Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, and they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Can you dig it? Groovy. Again, in verse 7, he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will obey. Can you dig it? Groovy. Right? God has rescued his people. He brought them to this little place of rest. He's affirmed his covenant. And he gave them these instructions. And to this they respond, not once, not twice, but three times. We can dig it. Groovy. All the Lord says we will do. At this point, God must be pleased. What a delight to have such a willing, obedient people. These people are so willing to affirm their loyalty, to express their commitment to obey, and to embrace the covenant relationship with the living God. And we're tempted to think they lived happily ever after. What more could be said? Isn't this the end of any great story? Well, if what I said is true, 
that character doesn't reveal itself unless we get bumped, then there must be more to this story. And, the, and there is. If you'll notice again in chapter 24, the end of the chapter, verse 18. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. For forty days and nights, Moses is going to receive detailed instructions from God that explain uh, how Israel will be able to draw near to him and to enjoy his presence among them. These these instructions relate to what we know as the tabernacle. And they explain in minute detail the materials, the furniture, the means by which people may fellowship with God. For 40 days and nights, you might say that God is pouring out his heart's desire as he describes these specific ways that his people are to love to serve, and to worship Him. And it takes 40 days and 40 nights. Well, this brings us to chapter 32. And this is where we enter the conflict. This is where something gets bumped. You see, during this time, in chapter 32, verse 1, We read that when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around him and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. In the absence of Moses, a condition of uncertainty settled upon the people. And 40 days was all it took, perhaps less than that. 40 days was the time needed for people to question their circumstances and to retreat from their unyielding commitment that they had just promised to the God who had rescued them. 40 days dissolved those three affirmations of willing obedience and loyalty. And we see here that the mere words were no match for time. Moses was so long in coming down. So long? Isn't this how we sometimes say goodbye? So long. So long, Moses. So long, God. Yeah, you did some great things three months ago. But we don't know where you are now. So we'll take it from here. Not only did the people uh, question their circumstances and effects say so long, but, but we read that their loyalty was exchanged for a desire to follow a lifeless idol made according to their own imagination, a golden calf. The people exchanged the living God for a lifeless idol. 
And not only this, but they reveled in it. They had a big party. There doesn't seem to have been any sense of betrayal or remorse or guilt. These people who had affirmed so much had just as quickly turned their backs on God and celebrated a product of their own hands. Notice in verse 6, again, chapter 32, verse 6. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. It's important here to note that revelry means drunken, immoral orgies and sexual play. These people didn't just doubt God. They didn't just question God. These people utterly rejected God. They rejected God and pursued every fleshly pleasure that they possibly could. And as the events unfold, the defection comes to the attention of Moses, who then comes down the mountain and can hardly believe what has happened. In the aftermath, there's lying, deceit, anger, confusion, doubt, uncertainty, and even death. And Moses, at at a point of desperation, talks with God and pleads with them, and those who are are remaining of the people are even remorseful. And we read... Jumping to chapter 33, that in verse 3, God says, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you're a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you're a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. I will decide what to do with you. At one point or another, we've either heard or used these words. I will decide what to do with you. We often use these words when we're so upset, we're paralyzed. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. We, we send our kids to their rooms. We disengage from the conflict and we say, I'll decide what to do. Now, I don't know that God was paralyzed by rage, but I do know, listen, that his treasured possession, his holy nation, his kingdom of priests, had just reveled, had just turned away from him in drunken, immoral orgies and sexual play. And the the relationship that he had initiated had been cut off. So what is God going to do? What would you do? In fact, what what do you do when faced with lying and stubborn people? What do you do when you're rejected 
or ignored. When your innermost being is stretched to the absolute limit, what do you do? What would you do if your treasure, your spouse, your best friend, your sibling, your child, what would you do if your treasure abandoned you and turned to another with joy and celebration? It's interesting that at one point, Moses says in verse 18 of chapter 33, Show me your glory. He says, show me your glory. In other words, I think Moses is saying, in this unimaginable conflict, when everything has gone wrong, help me see more of who you are. In other words, I think Moses is saying, I've seen more of who these people are, so show me more of who you are. And God responds, In verse 19, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'm going to declare my name. I'm going to declare to you the essence of who I am. I'm going to proclaim to you my goodness, my name, my character. And he does so in chapter 34, verse 5. And the stone stops skipping, and we go down. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents and to the third and fourth generation. God declares in this passage his character. His fundamental character that he wants us to know. His character is a disposition of goodness even in the face of sin. But if you're familiar with this story, this declaration is going to raise more questions than answers. But before we get there, I'd like to make two observations about this verse. One is related to punctuation, and the other is related to to grammar. So first, notice carefully the punctuation of verse 6 in your Bible. It will read something like this. The Lord, comma, the Lord, comma. 
the compassionate and gracious God, comma, slow to anger, comma, abounding in love and faithfulness, comma. You see, these are not five random adjectives so much as they are, I believe, meant to be read in groups, in in three groups. You see, the first two words go together. The compassionate and gracious God. Compassion and grace are two complements. Do you know that these words, compassionate and gracious, are only used to describe God? Compassion, we might say, refers to that which he withholds. He withholds his anger. He withholds his judgment. He withholds his wrath. He withholds these things in the face of conflict. But he's also gracious because he gives. God loves to give. There's a Bible writer in the New Testament that says this about God. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God gives to all life and breath and everything else. God loves to give. And so compassion and grace go together. Slow to anger is the second phrase, and it just describes God's patience. He is slow to anger. Slow. Most of us don't know what this is like. But God says he is slow to anger. And so finally, the second, group, the second grouping, God is abounding in love and faithfulness. These two words again work together. Only this time they communicate the idea of covenant loyalty or covenant faithfulness, true loyalty. God is a God of true loyalty. So one way to meditate on this verse is to recognize these three groups. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Now the second point is to notice how God demonstrates these attributes. How is God compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness? Well, verse 7 says, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. You see, these, these two words, maintaining love and forgiving wickedness, those are participles. And those describe how an action is done. So if God has all these qualities of verse 6, how does he do that? He maintains love. He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. But be careful. He does so... He does so without leaving the guilty unpunished. 
See, this is to say that God is also just. And the phrase, this third phrase is emphatic. It says, He will by no means acquit acquit the guilty. And who are the guilty? Those who refuse His goodness. Those who refuse His gracious goodness. See, if we go back and read the account of the golden calf, we find that God is actually angry. He threatens to destroy the people. We read that 3,000 people were killed and many others had to suffer a plague. And Moses pleaded with God to forgive their sin. And so if God is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding love and faithfulness, why did those things take place? Well, the answer is we, didn't, we don't have the whole story there. Not every detail is, is recorded, but you know, if we jump ahead and we read a prophet named Joel, a prophet named Joel, he says in chapter 2, he's, he's describing God talking to people, he says, even now return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. And Joel says, rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. In other words, Joel uses God's declaration of His own character to encourage people that if they return to the Lord, He will turn away from the evil that He's about to bring upon them. So those whom the Lord will not forgive are those who reject Him. Those who reject His forgiveness. Forgiveness is for the repentant. Those who change their mind and receive God's gracious gift of forgiveness. And so Moses immediately following the golden calf incident says, whoever's for the Lord, come to me. In other words, I think he gave people a chance to change their mind about God and to show that change by returning to Moses and thus return to God. The seriousness of this second half of verse 7, not leaving the guilty unpunished, punishing the sin of the children for three and four generations. Again, we get clarity from Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, where God says that He's punishing the children for the sin of the parents for the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. You see, children who grow up to follow in their parents' unbelief will remain guilty in their own sin. God maintains love, forgives sin without leaving the guilty unpunished. And so to summarize this passage, I'd like to refer to a a very old quote. It's over 100 years old. All the words which the language contained to express the idea of grace and its varied manifestations to the sinner are crowded here together to reveal the fact that in his inmost being, God is love. 
But in order that grace may not be perverted by sinners into a ground of doing whatever they want, justice is not lacking even here with its solemn warnings. Although it only follows mercy to show that mercy is mightier than wrath and that holy love does not punish unless sinners despise the riches of the goodness, patience, and long-suffering of God. Mercy is mightier than wrath. However we sum up the character of God, whether we say He is good, or whether we say He is love, or whether we say He is great, we must always remember that God at His very core is an infinite and perfect combination of all that is good and right. Can you dig it? This is the character of God we read in our Bibles. This is the character that governs all that God has done or said or will do or will say. This is the character of God who says of himself, I do not change. I dare say that within our own hearts, this can be difficult to accept. We can't help but relate to God in some of the ways that we relate to people. We guard our hearts. We remain relationally distant. We believe things that are not true about God. But God is not like us. He is God. He is perfect in all His ways and we have the opportunity to change our minds about Him, to come near to Him, and to receive His forgiveness, compassion, and grace. So time fails me this morning to show how this character has been demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. And this will be addressed later in our sermon series. But I would simply say that the riches of God's character, His compassion and grace and love and forgiveness are all most fully expressed in Jesus. To, to love and accept Jesus Christ is to love and accept God Himself. To resist or reject Jesus is to be a hater of God. So as you take time this week thinking about God, or uh, reading portions of your Bible, or working through your own circumstances in life. Remember what God is really like. A compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing these things to us today. They are not easy. And we need your help to understand them, to believe them, to apply them to our life. Help us to believe that you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. We thank you for this opportunity and for this word. In Jesus' name, amen.